0: And we'll go ahead and open back up to Mark chapter 4. And I'd like to begin this morning by mentioning a, a, a really dramatic, I believe, news story that broke a few weeks ago. I don't know if you saw this, but a former NFL player, Aaron Hernandez, actually committed suicide in his jail cell. And if you're not, not familiar with, uh, with Aaron Hernandez, uh, the guy was a world-class athlete. He was agile. He was quick. He was jacked out of his mind. Um, He was a physical specimen, totally was. And uh, from a young age, he was very, very um, gifted in athletics. He grew up in Bristol, Connecticut, ran track, played basketball, played football. But this guy could never stay out of trouble. He was always mixed up in the wrong crowd. And so when he actually graduated from high school, he decided the best thing to do would be to get out of town. So he left Connecticut and he went to college at the University of Florida. He was actually mentored there by a guy named Tim Tebow. And despite, you know, this wonderful mentor and despite Tim doing everything he could to take this guy under his wing, uh, Hernandez could not separate himself from the bad crowd. And so, you know, he was, he was arrested for fighting in bars. He was, uh, he was caught doing illegal drugs. His life was constantly teetering on the edge of oblivion, despite his great physical talent. And, you know, things didn't get better when he went to the NFL. Uh, He was drafted by the Patriots, I think, in the fourth round, and the guy's just career blew up. He went to the Super Bowl with his team. Uh, He was an all-pro tight end. He got a $40 million contract. I mean, life was good. The world was this guy's oyster. But despite all of that, Aaron Hernandez could never steer clear of trouble in his life. And uh, in 2012... He got into a fight at a Boston nightclub with two guys. And uh, these two men fled obviously because he was a jack dude he could bust your face in. So they fled and actually what happened is the car they were driving away in got shot up and the two men were killed. And it later came out, the reason they were shot and the reason this altercation broke out was because one of them actually dumped a drink on Hernandez by accident. And he interpreted that as a lack of respect. That was in 2012, a year later. Aaron Hernandez was at a Miami strip club and uh, a friend of his that was a drug dealer named Alexander Bradley, uh, they got into it a little bit. There was some beef and Aaron Hernandez actually shot him in the forehead and dumped his body in an alley. Then a year later, Hernandez murdered one of his close friends named Odin Lloyd in cold blood, took him out in the middle of nowhere at like 3 a.m. and just put a bullet in his head. And the reason was Hernandez thought he was talking bad about him behind his back. So Aaron Hernandez, this world-class athlete, from all appearances, didn't didn't appear to be human. He didn't seem to be someone with even a conscience or or knew right from wrong. I mean, he seemed like this hardened thug that would kill you if he thought you were disrespecting him. And that's why when he was arrested in 2014, there's, there's tons of videos of this on the internet, but when he was arrested in 2014, the Boston PD came and picked him up and He was not, like, humbled and, like, covering his face when the cops came and drug him out of his house. He actually strutted down the sidewalk in front of his house like he just scored a touchdown. I mean, total lack of respect for life, total lack of respect for the law. I mean, he was the the prototypical definition of of a thug. And that is why it shocked everyone. When he was found dead last month in his jail cell, he had hung himself by his bedsheets. And what really surprised a lot of people, in fact, it actually stunned me, because I knew how hardened this guy was. What stunned a lot of people was the actual, the state of his jail cell. Because when the guards broke into a cell and untied him and looked around, it was an eerie sight. First of all, because Aaron Hernandez had a Bible open on his bed, and was open to John 3.16, and it was underlined in blood. And then on the wall of his prison cell, there was actually John 3.16 written in blood, and I think weirdest of all, on his forehead he wrote with ink John 3.16. Now, obviously, something about that particular verse struck a chord with Aaron Hernandez. It was his final message to the world. He wanted to be found that way. And if you're not familiar with John 3.16, we'll, we'll display it on the overhead here. John 3.16 is one of the most encouraging verses in all the scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus, so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. There was something about that verse to Aaron Hernandez that spoke volumes to him, so much so that he didn't go out of this world, you know, writing gang signs on his wall of his jail cell or anything else. John 3.16 was his final message to the world. And so it appeared that the man that was a thug originally saw a need for God. Apparently, this guy saw a need to be forgiven, to be saved by a God in heaven, and he felt so strongly about this that he actually wanted John 3.16 to be his final testimony to the world. And listen, being a huge football fan, uh, this shocked me. I mean, I mean, I'm reading this on ESPN.com, and I'm reading about John 3.16 and blood here and there on his forehead, and I'm like, this is This is unbelievable. And what I did was I actually scrolled down on ESPN.com to read the comments thread, which I never recommend doing ever, okay? (laughs) If you're ever on a a blog or anything, never scroll to the comment thread. It will never go pretty. You'll spend like 30 minutes of your life wasted forever. Uh, But I just got it. I said, you know, I'm going to scroll down and see what people are saying about this. And you know what? The the, uh, responses were very understandable. The first, very first comment read this. How bizarre. He murders at least three people in cold blood, but he figures that writing a Jesus quote on his forehead just before he commits suicide will somehow save him. If Christianity works this way, it indeed is a crazy belief system. Another person posted this. Another murderer that found God. They all find God, don't they? Hilarious. I hope this guy rots in hell. You know, you read comment after comment after comment in the thread section of the ESPN article, and uh, people were ticked off. I mean, they were fired up. They may not even believe in Jesus, but it's like, how dare this guy claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Because Aaron Hernandez did things that were unforgivable in their eyes. A man like Aaron Hernandez did not deserve to go to heaven. He didn't deserve it. He didn't earn it. This man was a bad person who did bad things, and he should go to a very bad place. That was the consensus of the comments on that blog. And here's the deal, guys. Let's be honest. That's how our hearts function too. That's exactly the way that we reason, isn't it? Because we're naturally skeptical that bad people who do bad things can actually go to heaven. That's our default mode, you know, when when Jeffrey Dahmer Remember Jeffrey Dahmer, the the serial killer guy, did all kinds of, you know, serial killers that are white do crazy stuff, okay? But this guy like chopped people up and did crazy stuff. And he actually, he went out, he kidnapped people, chopped them up, put them in like freezers, and when that guy found God in prison, people scoffed. They were like, there's no way a guy like Jeffrey Dahmer could possibly go to heaven. They were actually offended. How dare he claim to be a Christian after everything that he's done? Because our default mode, guys, is to reason. You know what? Bad people people get bad things. Good people get good things. That's just the natural way that we reason. And what's surprising is this. In our text this morning, Jesus is going to take that logic and actually flip it on its head. He's going to take that logic and flip it on its head. And in our text this morning, Jesus is teaching us this. Good people don't go to heaven Forgiven people do. Good people don't go to heaven, forgiven people do. That's what our text this morning is all about. And listen, we parachuted in, so let me give you some background, okay? We are preaching right now through the Gospel of Mark. Gospel of Mark is the go gospel. It's short, it's punchy, it's fun. It's like a short Netflix documentary, okay? It's amazing, okay? It's like 45 minutes and you're out of here. That's the Gospel of Mark. And so we are preaching through the Gospel of Mark, and we are in Mark chapter 4 this morning. And Mark chapter 4 is all about the kingdom of God but it's an upside-down kingdom. It's an upside-down kingdom. And the kingdom of God is a tremendously important reality of Scripture. I mean, if you were to still the entire Bible down and just distill it down to one thought or theme, it would be the coming of the kingdom of God. That would be what it's all about. And so the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, God says, listen, my kingdom's coming, and I'm going to rule and reign forever. And that is the main storyline from Genesis to Revelation. It's the kingdom of God. And listen, for thousands of years, the Jewish people, they waited eagerly for the coming of God's kingdom. But here's the deal. When Jesus showed up and started telling people about the kingdom of God, everyone rejected him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. I mean, you read through the Gospels, and time after time after time... Jesus says, I'm here, guys, and they say, no, thanks, we're not interested. I mean, first of all, the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, rejected Jesus. And if you're kind of new to church, the scribes and the Pharisees um, were the Bible thumpers of their day. They were the guys that stood out on street corners with huge signs that said, the kingdom of God is coming, turn now, you know, that was what they did. And so they spent all their time researching and drawing charts about the coming of the kingdom of God and warning people that Messiah was coming. And here's the deal. These guys were the Messiah watchers, and when the Messiah came, they actually rejected him. Not only did they reject him, they actually called him Beelzebub, which is actually, that's a nickname for Satan. So the Messiah, God in the flesh, comes and they're like, hey, no thanks, Satan. We don't want any of that. The very people who memorized the Old Testament and uh, memorized the coming of the kingdom of God missed it, and they actually called God Satan. But listen, here, here's the deal. They weren't the only ones that rejected Jesus. We saw a couple weeks ago, as, as Tommy preached, Jesus was also rejected by his own family. In Mark chapter 3, it says that Jesus' brother, and uh, excuse me, his brothers and his mother, they came after him. He was preaching at a house church And Jesus is getting into text, and Jesus' mom and his two brothers are outside. And and, and Mary's like, Jesus, come home, honey. You're not well. You're not well, sweetie. Come home, you know. It says they thought he was out of his mind. You know, Lima Richie sang, Mary, did you know? Apparently she didn't know. Okay? She had no idea. She doubted he was the Messiah. Song's big Christmas time. I love it. Love it. Mary didn't know, apparently. They thought he needed to be baker-acted. They thought he was literally out of his mind. His own family doubted him. You know what's worse? This is probably the worst. Jesus' own spokesman denied him. Remember John the Baptist? John the Baptist was Jesus' hype man, okay? He's a hype man, okay? If Jesus was Mike Tyson, John the Baptist was Don King, okay? And he's like, hey, Messiah's here, Messiah's here, Messiah's here. He's here, he's here. And listen, it said John the Baptist continually pointed to Jesus until he was locked up in prison and put on death row, and then he sent a message and said, listen, hey Jesus, are you the guy, or we, shouldn't we expect someone else? Are you the Messiah even? I'm not sure. This is, this is not working out the way I thought. You read through the Gospels, everyone rejected Jesus, and the question is this. Why did his family, his spokesmen, the Bible thumpers of their day, why did they all reject Jesus? And the answer is this. Because the type of kingdom that Jesus talked about was so counterintuitive It was offensive. It was utterly contradictory to every kind of earthly kingdom they knew about. It was actually an upside-down kingdom where the last became first, and the first became last, and the ruler of all became the servant of all. It was an upside-down kingdom that actually offended everyone's religious sensibilities because Jesus came and he preached an upside-down kingdom. And that is why... Throughout the, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, throughout the whole fourth chapter, Jesus is explaining what his kingdom is like. And in verse 11, if you look there, he says, The kingdom of God is a secret or a mystery, your Bible may say. Literally, musterion in the Greek. The kingdom of God transcends normal understanding, it's a mystery. It functions and it expands in ways that are absolutely contradictory to our human logic and thinking. Jesus came to establish an upside-down kingdom. And so the kingdom of God takes logic and it actually flips it on its head. And that is why throughout this section, Jesus is teaching in parables. Now, the word parable, it just means a riddle or a mysterious saying. In fact, in the Old Testament, we'll show you a verse here from Psalm 78 and verse 2. It reads, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter dark sayings of old. A parable is a riddle, it's a dark saying. It's something that when you hear it, it's not immediately clear what it's referring to or what it means. And the reason that Jesus taught about the kingdom of God in parables. Is because it matched the mysterious, dark, counterintuitive nature of the kingdom of God itself. So, parables, the tone and the type of, of speaking a parable was matched the mystery of the kingdom of God. And so, throughout this section, Jesus is going to be teaching about the kingdom of God in these counterintuitive riddles called parables. And this is going to be awesome, okay? I can't wait to get into the series because this is, this is legit, seriously. There, there are nuggets galore here. You're going to walk out with nuggets falling out of your pocket, you know. I hope you wore a bib this morning because you're going to have it all dribbled over your shirt, okay? This is awesome because the first counterintuitive reality of this kingdom is this, ready? The way you enter it. The way you enter this kingdom is counterintuitive, and this is where Jesus starts. And so in this first parable, the parable of the sower, it's been called, or the parable of the soils, I call it the parable of the seed, honestly, because it's about the seed. But in this first parable, Jesus is going to show people how they get saved and how they enter the kingdom of God. And says, Jesus said this, he said this, The kingdom of God is like a farmer. He goes out into a field, and he starts throwing seed around some seed fell on really compact ground and the birds came and they ate it and it didn't do anything. Other seed fell on rocky soil that wasn't very deep. So what happened? It shoots up and then it burns up. Other seed fell among weeds and thorns and so that shoots up but the weeds and the thorns choke it out and it doesn't produce any grain. It doesn't produce any fruit. And lastly, Jesus says, There's a seed that fell on good soil, and it produces a crop 30, 60, or 100-fold. Now, I realize this parable, on the surface, it appears very straightforward, doesn't it? It's like, okay, there's four kinds of soil. Jesus actually explained what it means, uh, so there's no mystery here. But here's the deal. A lot of times in the Bible, familiarity breeds unfamiliarity. Because I think a lot of people heard this was the parable of the soils, and they already checked out mentally. They're like, you know what? I've already heard this type of sermon a million times before, and so I'm just going to have my Windows screensaver on for the next 40 minutes. You know, the pipes and the fish swimming and everything. You're just checked out because you think you already know what this means. But here's the deal. This is a counterintuitive truth that Jesus is is teaching us here. Because I think a lot of us, we read the parable of the sower, and we immediately conclude that Jesus is teaching us that real Christians bear fruit. That's a lot of people's takeaway. They read this and they're like, okay, Jesus is teaching us that truly committed people, people that are truly committed and sold out to the kingdom of God, bear fruit. And I would say this, that's a secondary application of this text, but it's not the primary reason Jesus told this parable. I mean, honestly, what is so counterintuitive about that? You think Jesus came down and told the Pharisees, Hey, listen, guys, I just want you to know something, okay? Really godly people do good things. Oh, dude, I never thought of that, you know? This is amazing. This is profound. That's not the point, the primary purpose of this parable. It's not to teach us that good people do good things. Godly people bear fruit. Because if that was the main point of this parable, the Pharisees would have said amen. Exactly, Jesus, you nailed it. No, there's something counterintuitive about this parable. And to understand what that is, you have to first of all remember who Jesus is talking to again. Who is he talking to? He's talking to Jewish people, scribes, Pharisees, people who lived in the first century. And listen, Jesus is talking to people who are kingdom experts. They are experts about the coming of the kingdom of God. And the scribes, the Pharisees, they actually made a living telling people how you get saved, how you enter the kingdom of God. And if you, if you asked a Pharisee to go to lunch, and you guys sat down, and you're like, listen, hey, dude, how do I get saved, man? How does it happen? They would tell you this. They would say, here's what you got to do. First of all, you've got to convert to Judaism and become a Jew, okay? And what that means, first of all, is you actually have to go into the knife and get circumcised if you're a man, okay? That would be a huge deal. If you thought evangelism today to millennials was tough, imagine evangelism 2,000 years ago, okay? That's a hard sell right off the bat there, you know? Um, but you had to convert to Judaism. You had to become a Jew. Then you had to adopt all the Jewish customs, all the feasts, all the fasts, the ceremonies, the liturgy. You had to obey all 613 Old Testament laws. And you you had to do a lot of journaling. There was a lot of workbooks, I'm sure, in Judaism. Lots and lots of journaling. There was a lot of stuff you had to do to enter the kingdom of God. And you have to say it that way, the kingdom of God. To enter the kingdom of God, you must strive. To be Jewish. That was that was that was their answer. If you met with a Pharisee or a scribe. And what is interesting is that Jesus doesn't mention any of that at all. When he talks about entering the kingdom of God, he says, here's how it happens: farmer goes out, he's got a bunch of seed, and he starts scattering it all over the place. And so it's not by converting to Judaism and trying really hard that you enter the kingdom of God. It's by receiving the seed that's being scattered all around. That's how you enter the kingdom of God. And the question is this, what is the seed Jesus is referring to? The seed's the gospel. The seed is John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. That's the seed. That is the seed being scattered everywhere. And so Jesus is saying, you don't achieve the kingdom, you receive the kingdom. Jesus is saying, good people don't go to heaven, forgiven people do. People that receive the seed receive the life, death, and resurrection. Jesus Christ, And listen, this message would have been just as bizarre and counterintuitive to them as it is to us today. Because again, this message, it offends us. This is so offensive because listen, the Bible has a lot of rules in it. There's a lot of morality in here. And are you telling me I just believe in Jesus and I skirt this whole thing and I don't have to keep this? It offends us to hear that we merely receive a message to enter the kingdom because first of all, It doesn't seem fair. It seems totally unfair that you can live however you want. You could kill three people and then in your jail cell believe in Jesus and be saved. That sounds so offensive to us. And so we naturally think about people like Aaron Hernandez and people like Jeffrey Dahmer and we say, there's no way those guys are in heaven. There's no way. Because the gospel message sounds like foolishness, it sounds like something that's not fair at all. But, but here's the deal. Jesus makes it fair. The cross makes it fair, because Jesus did not come to earth to teach us not to allow our kids to watch Spongebob, okay? He came to earth to trade places with us. That's the primary reason he came down here. And so Jesus came down here to live the life you couldn't live, to die the death you should have died, so that you could live the life in heaven with him forever that you've always wanted and imagined. That's why Jesus came to the earth. He didn't come down here and say, hey, listen, really good people bear fruit. Really committed people bear fruit. That was not the point of this parable. He came to switch places with us. And so when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we get his perfect life. And Jesus suffered on the cross for our jacked up life. So the cross makes forgiveness for sinners fair. It makes it fair. First John 1 John 1:9 reads this. Here we go. If we confess our sins, he is faithful in what? Just to do what? To forgive us our sins. Just, he's just. What does that mean? It means fair. It means right, it means proper. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Okay, so here's the deal. The cross makes it fair. The cross makes it fair. The cross actually makes it just for sinners to be forgiven by faith alone. And here's the deal, guys. We are prone to just have a negative view of God's justice. We, we, we use the word God's justice and we think of one thing, God chopping up sinners and condemning them. But here's the deal. Justice has two sides to it. God is just, when he judges sinners, and God is just when he takes sinners to heaven based upon faith in Jesus. There's two sides of God's justice. So we can't just have strictly a negative view of justice. I mean, think of it in a human court of law. When when a criminal goes to court and the jury says you're guilty, we say justice was served. And when an innocent person goes to court and is acquitted, we also say justice was served. There's two sides of justice, and so we have to be so careful. When we talk about God's justice and God's righteousness and God being fair, we have to understand there's a negative side and a positive side. So because of the cross, the forgiveness of sinners is just now. In fact, I would put it this way. It would be unfair for God to send a believer to hell. Be unfair. Be unjust. Never going to happen. It's going to happen every day of the week and twice on Sundays. God is just and righteous and holy to take people to heaven based upon faith in His Son because God's justice has two sides to it. So here's the first answer. If if it sounds unfair to you, if it sounds unfair that a guy like Jeffrey Dahmer could, could actually be in heaven, here's the deal. The cross makes it fair. The cross makes it fair. But that's the first reason we reject this message because it sounds like it's too easy. It sounds unfair. The second reason we reject this message is because there are so many people out there in the world that claim to be Christians. I mean, listen, let's just level here this morning. This is America. Everyone's a Christian. From Justin Bieber to Big Bird, everyone's a Christian, right? Everyone. Everyone. And and so everyone, you know, they sing about it. Jesus is my homeboy. Everyone's a Christian. Everyone's a Christian. And, And here's the deal. Jesus said people who really receive the seed... They do two very important things right here in this text. First of all, in verse 20, it says, They bear grain, or literally, they bear fruit. They bear fruit. People that truly receive the seed bear fruit. What does that mean? What are we talking about fruit? Well, here's the deal the Bible lists all kinds of stuff as fruit. You know, serving God is, is fruit, striving to live a life that pleases God is fruit, praying to God is fruit, giving your money to further the kingdom of God is fruit, sharing your faith with others is a fruit. The Bible lists all kinds of stuff as fruit. Your character can be fruit. And Jesus says this He says, Those who truly believe the gospel, those who truly receive the seed, bear fruit. Because this seed is so powerful, it's impossible to receive it and not bear fruit. The power's in the seed, it has nothing at all to do with the soil. I mean, I have a garden in my house, and I've got stones in between my raised beds. I've got lettuce in these nice raised beds, and then I've got stones in between. You know what? Every once in a while, a seed will fall out into the rocks, and somehow something will spring up there temporarily, and it's like there's no soil there. Power's in the seed. The power is in the seed, and it's impossible, Jesus said, to receive the seed and not bear fruit. Because here's the deal. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says you receive God's Holy Spirit. And it's impossible for you to have the Holy Spirit, God himself, dwelling inside of you and not bear fruit. You know, the Holy Spirit inside of a believer is like LeBron James on 10 days rest in the playoffs. He's going to go off, okay? He's going to have 50 points, 25 rebounds, because, listen, when when God the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you, he's going to want to do something through you. He's not going to be content to sit on the bench, And that's why believers, those that truly receive the word of God, they actually delight. Let's show that next slide, please. They actually delight in obedience. That's why Psalm 40 and verse 8 says, I delight to do your will, O God, because what? Your law has been written in my heart. You place your faith in Christ. Holy Spirit comes and dwells inside of you. And all of a sudden, you have CFBD. That's compulsive fruit-bearing disorder. That's what you have now, okay? You're addicted to obedience now. It's like, I can't help it, you know? Because it's impossible to truly receive the Word of God, the gospel of God, and not bear fruit. And so, listen, if a person claims that Jesus is my homeboy, but there's zero fruit, like zero, something's wrong. (laughs) Something is wrong there because I get it. There's a ton of people out there, they claim to believe in Jesus. Not in church anywhere, ever. Aren't sharing their faith, ever. They aren't using their money for anything related to the kingdom of God. They use their body the way they want to. God ain't going to tell me how I'm going to live my life. And yet they say, Jesus is my homeboy. And you can clearly see there's zero fruit in their life. And Jesus says, listen, that's not truly receiving the seed because it's impossible. This seed is so powerful. It's impossible to receive the seed and not bear fruit. It's not you doing it it's God's Holy Spirit doing it through you now Jesus doesn't stop there though because listen he knows us he knows people like us and so he says something else at the very end of verse 20 look there he says and these Christians that will bear fruit they will bear fruit 60 100 and 30 fold in other words Jesus is saying this he said you got 30 fold Christians you got 60 fold Christians and then you have a hundredfold Christians. Now here's the question: why in the world does Jesus mention this? Well, because Jesus knows our tendency, guys, as, as Christians, is we hear that that real Christians bear fruit, and then we shift gears and become overly critical fruit inspectors. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you know what, we read like 300-page books on the marks of true Christians, and we see how well we match up. And so Jesus brings in a little balance here for us legalists, especially recovering legalists, because Jesus knows when he says fruit's going to be in a believer's life, we're going to start immediately going around going, hmm, I wonder about Bill over there. Seems a little weak in the fruit section, doesn't he? You know? (laughs) He knows us, friends. He's got us nailed here. And so Jesus said, yeah, Christians will bear fruit, but be careful that you don't go around judging people and saying they don't bear enough fruit, okay? Because here's the deal. You guys ever watch Deadliest Catch? I think it's, is it the History Channel? It's these fishermen. They are, dude, they're stinking nuts, man. They go out in the middle of like the Arctic Ocean in Alaska. Is that the Arctic Ocean? All right. Tal and Kim lived up there. I think it's the Arctic Ocean. We'll cut that if it's bad. Um, But they go fishing, okay, and they they catch these huge Alaskan uh, king crabs. And these things are stinking huge, dude. And here's the deal. So they'll bring this huge cage in and they dump it out on the table. And they have this huge caliper thing, this gauge. It's a measuring stick. And they hold the crab up and then they go whoop. And if it's too small, they throw it back in the ocean because they can't keep it. Listen, we do that in the church. (laughs) Oh, yeah, We do. People come in, we get our caliper out. We're like, yeah, we'll see how he measures up. You know, bam, you know. And here's the deal. Our caliper is usually what we're good at in our walk. So, you know, mmm. So listen, if we have the gift of evangelism, then you better have the gift of evangelism, or you ain't legit. If I have the gift of giving, then you better have the gift. If If I've adopted six orphans from Cambodia, guess what? You haven't adopted one. Are you sure you're real? We do this, and we write books about it and we judge each other. And the body of Christ becomes like an autoimmune disorder. It's too busy tearing each other up. It can't do anything healthy. Bring it is right. Bring it is right. Because that's what we do. And Jesus, he's balancing us out here and saying, listen, real Christians are going to have fruit, but listen, there's 30, 60, and 100 full Christians. And in fact, I made a graph because it's so much easier to see when you graph stuff. Yeah. I got carried away with Excel spreadsheets this week, so... Went back to DBCC, my AA degree. So there's two years of hard training right there. Look at that. (laughs) So Jesus says this. Ready? you got 30, 60, and 100-fold. In other words, everyone that blows off Sunday school is not going straight to hell, okay? Because some people will be twice and three times as effective as other Christians. Or you could say it this way. Some people are half or a third as productive as other Christians which means we don't all fit in the same box. We all have different ceilings. We all have different potential. Jesus said it himself. And listen, there are people that are going to adopt you know, six Cambodian orphans and open a, a coffee bar to reach millennials in their spare time, and then there's folks that are going to struggle to make it here on time. I get that, and they're going to have one ministry, and that's the way it is in the kingdom of God. And so we have to be so careful that we don't measure people right out of the kingdom because we like to do that. We like to thin the herd, right? By somehow making the standard so high that no one can possibly attain it. And Jesus said this. He said, listen, you've got 30, 60, and 100 fold Christians. I'm just letting you know, you're going to have fruit. But don't run around beating people over the head with your Bible, please. Because there will be all kinds of different people in the kingdom of God. There's going to be David Platt type people, and there's going to be some C students in the kingdom of God. That's the way it is. And so the first characteristic Jesus says... Real Christians, people that have truly received the gospel, they bear fruit, okay? Secondly, they will persevere in the faith. They will persevere in the faith. Those who truly receive the seed, they will persevere to the very end. And Jesus said this. He said, the seed that falls among the rocky soil... The shallow soil and the seed that falls among the thorns and the weeds, Jesus said it grows for a little while and then it peters out. He said the seed that falls on the good soil, though, it grows up and it stays up and it bears a crop, a harvest, right? And so here's the deal. Real faith, when you truly receive the gospel, you will bear fruit with perseverance. Perseverance. Now, I want to pull the car for a second, okay, and have a father-son chat, okay, because this is serious here. There is is something that looks like saving faith, but it's not saving faith. It's called crisis management, okay? And can we show the next slide, uh, please, Andrew? There's two things. There's true faith, and then there's faith's evil twin. His name is crisis management, okay? Now, listen, they both look like faith. They smell like faith. They dress like faith. They talk like faith. They look identical. The thing that distinguishes true saving faith from crisis management is perseverance. Perseverance. You know, I cannot tell you how many times Tommy or myself, you know, will have someone that will start attending Grace Life and then we won't see him for a few months and then, like, I'll get a text message out of nowhere and they're like, dude, we gotta get together. We gotta meet, we gotta meet now, we gotta meet now. And I'm like, it's 9.45 on a Sunday night and I'm watching Netflix with my wife. I can't come right now. I'm like, can we come tomorrow? Can I have lunch tomorrow? And they're like, yeah, we got, we got to meet. So I'll rearrange my entire schedule on a Monday morning so I can meet with them for lunch, and then I'll text them at like 9 a.m. I'm like, hey, dude, we still on for lunch? And like an hour later, they'll get back and say, man, I just can't make it, something came up. That happens all the time. Or someone will call me on the phone and for two hours just dump all the stuff on me. And they'll tell me, Jeff, i got to turn my life around. Here's what I've been doing. I need to get in church. I need to get in a home group. Will you disciple me? Will Jesus?" It's like they have all these things. They want to do everything. They're ambitious. They want to write their first Christian book. I mean, they have all these things they want to do. And they're like, dude. And at the end of a two-hour conversation, it's like they've had this emotional catharsis. And they're like, dude, I can't wait to see you Sunday. I'm like, amen, brother. And then they never come. They never come. Happens like 90% of the time. In fact, Tommy and I have a a running joke that if we have lunch with a first-time guest on like a Monday or Tuesday after they come for the first time on a Sunday, we won't see them ever again. (laughs) Seriously. It's dead serious. And listen, because what looked like humility, there was brokenness, there was confession over that phone call for two hours. It looked like there was faith here. Looked like a person that was turning their life around. They saw the need to turn their life around. They're like, I need to start coming to church. I need to start living for God. I need to get off drugs. Da-da-da-da-da-da. But what looked like faith initially was actually crisis management. Because here's the deal. Those people, they usually call because something went wrong in their life. And listen, if we were honest, every single one of us came to Christ when something went wrong in our life. But here's the deal. You're still here. That's the difference. You're still here. You persevered. Some people... They get into a bind or a crisis with the cops or their girlfriend moves out or whatever it is, and life hits the fan. And so what they do is they pick the phone up and they immediately need crisis, crisis, man. I need someone to talk to. I got to get this off my chest. I'm going to turn my life around. You know what happens? They never follow through. And Jesus said, true faith perseveres. True faith will persevere to the end. And so, here's the deal. We have to be so careful when we're evaluating a believer's walk or someone professing faith in Christ. Is there not only fruit, but is there fruit with perseverance? Are they following Christ today? Because a lot of people, they view Jesus not as their Lord and Savior. He's kind of like AAA. And you just call him when you get in trouble and you break down and he gets you back on the road again. And Jesus said, real, true Christians will bear fruit with perseverance. Now, perhaps this morning you have a, you've realized that you know, maybe you look at your life and you're like, I don't, I don't see fruit. I don't see fruit. This is the first time I've been in church in forever. And, and what should I do? I, I feel like I'm in this category of people that Jesus is, is encouraging to do something, but, but what should I do? If you're, if you're wondering what God wants you to do this morning, the answer is in verse 9, okay? Can we show that slide, please, Andrew? This is the only thing Jesus told his crowd to do. This is the only command, right? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What what does Jesus want you to do? He wants you to believe that he loves you, that he died for you on the cross, that he willingly bore the wrath of God on your behalf, that everything that's in your past, everything that's in your future, it's already water under the bridge because of Christ. He wants you to receive the seed. Because the worst thing you could do this morning is to hear about fruit and perseverance and immediately run out and start to try to, like, manufacture fruit. That'd be the worst thing. Because, again, the power is in the seed. The deeper you grow in God's love for you, the more God's love will be expressed through you. And so, please don't run out and try to bear fruit. Instead, he that has ears to hear, let them hear. Accept your acceptance. Receive your reception because Christ paid it all. And maybe you're someone that says, but but God doesn't want me. I had someone tell me that just the other day. It's a pizza place I go to all the time for pizza and the owner said, God doesn't want me. Here's the deal, friends. It's not your sin that disqualifies you from salvation. It's your pride. It's your pride. Because our God is wonderfully attracted to need. He is. He draws. He sees need and he draws near. We run away. We turn our phone off with need. Jesus actually draws near to need. Because our God is wonderfully attracted to need. You know, when I was growing up, um, I think some of you know this, but not everyone. My, My sister, I have a younger sister. She's handicapped. She's mentally handicapped. She's got cerebral palsy. And uh, I saw my my mom and dad make sacrifices that were unbelievable to care for her. And they still do to this very day. I mean, she she has seizures. They come out of nowhere. She falls. She's busted her teeth out more times than I can count. Um, She gets up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, and, and she'll have a seizure, and she'll fall, and she'll hurt herself bad. And so I grew up watching my dad every time my sister got up in the middle of the night Get up too, make sure she's okay. You can never rest. 24-7, it's like having a little child, a little child that can hurt herself all the time. 24-7, I saw my mom and dad grow up that way. And listen, I've seen, I've seen so many, th- I've seen my parents just go through so much with that. And, and, and here's the deal. If you forced my mom and dad to make a choice and to say, which of these children do you love more? Do you love the son or do you love the mentally handicapped daughter you have without hesitation you know who they would say because that's that's the parental instinct isn't it i mean it's always the troubled kid the needy kid that gets all the love isn't it the sacrifice the devotion the tears the prayer and that if that's true of fallen earthly parents like us how much more true is that of our god in heaven That our God is wonderfully attracted to need. Your need does not repel him. He sits on a throne and the throne says grace. It's a throne called grace. That's his throne. And so if you're someone that thinks, you know what, I'm unqualified, guess what? That means you're qualified. Because God loves you and he died for you. And what does he want you to do this morning? The only thing Jesus told this crowd was, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. If you haven't turned your life over to Christ, if you haven't received the seed, please do so this morning. I'll lead you in a prayer now. Father,